We have arrived at Luke chapter 12, and the next few chapters, a lot of exciting teaching Jesus' disciples. What a wonderful time to talk about discipleship. If you're here last week, we saw Jesus confront the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers. They invited him over to lunch, and then insulted him. Because he didn't ceremonially wash, which was a man-made set of rules the Pharisees had come up with that made them feel clean and holy and superior to other people. And so he let them have it, basically. They invited him over to lunch, and it's just not something you would do in an honor-shame culture is insult your hosts. But the hosts insulted the guests. And he is setting up confrontation. That's what he came to do, to save sinners, to seek the lost, but for those who were turning people away from God to confront them, and most specifically the religious leaders of Israel who thought they were leading people to God, but they were leading people's hearts far away from God. Legalism and self-righteousness always leads you far away from God. Humility leads us to God. We put a big emphasis in our church on discipleship, and I realize for some it sounds complicated and intimidating. And we need to leave that up to the professionals. But there's just not enough professionals to go around. And whether or not we, were, we are professionals, we'd be making disciples anyways. I said that last week. You are discipling people whether you know it or not. The question is, are you discipling them correctly? Are you teaching them the ways of Christ? Are you, are you teaching the Bible in the way you speak, the way you live your life? People are watching you. You're learning from other people as well. You're always learning. Hopefully you're learning right now. But we learn anytime we Turn on the TV, turn on the radio, listen to a piece of music, read a book, read a magazine, read a newspaper. God commands us to be careful about who is teaching us. And in no uncertain terms, we saw last week, he said to turn away from false teaching. And at the end of the passage, we see the false teachers began to plot against them, trying to come up some way to publicly expose Jesus and trap him into making some kind of false statement. Instead of repenting and seeing the error of their ways, humbling themselves, they all the more sought to hang on to their position of power and authority and eliminate Jesus from the scene. But at this time, the crowds, many, are followers of Jesus or at least He's popular at the moment. And so they know they can't just publicly get rid of him or kill him. They're plotting to tarnish his reputation publicly so that they can destroy him. So my aim this morning is to help make discipleship simple by... Narrowing it down to its most basic component. 
my kids asked yesterday, what are you preaching on? I said, discipleship. And they said, oh, no. <laughs> they know I love this topic, and they, they packed a lunch and a dinner. They, <laughs> they said, no, it's a three-part sermon, so I don't have to say it all today. And they're like, oh, but you will. So... <laughs> Why am I so excited about discipleship? Well, yeah, I, I have the gift of, of teaching. I love to teach, but the Bible tells me, and we're going to see in Luke later, the parable of the prodigal son, that what excites God more than anything else? What excites God more than anything else? When one sinner repents... That's why I love discipleship. The joy that came into my life when I received Jesus as Lord, the joy when I see something as His Word and the Holy Spirit opens my eyes and I'm like, wow, that's what's been missing. How, how dull I've been, how blind I've been. I want others to have that experience because I know it glorifies God. And brings great joy to the person that I'm helping. And yet I recognize that it is scary because sometimes the disciple doesn't want to listen. And the rejection can feel personal. I built all this time building trust and in a relationship and and you trust that I love you, and we've done life together. And then they hear something from the Word of God they don't want to hear, and they can get angry and defensive and take it out on you and take it out on the church and just say, I'm, I'm not going to be your friend anymore because, well, what's going on is they're convicted. And it doesn't really mean they want to terminate the friendship or the relationship. God's doing more work on their heart. And yeah, sometimes I shy away from discipleship because I don't want to see that relationship end. And you're like, this is going so well, but I have a feeling as soon as I show them this, <laughs> it's not going to go well, but out of love for them and trusting that the same powerful work God has done in my heart, of course he can do in someone else's heart. Don't jump to conclusions that it's not going to go well. Even if the person won't listen, the proclamation of God's truth brings glory to God. It never glorifies God to hide his truth or hold back his truth because you think, well, they won't be able to handle it. Or they're just going to reject it anyways, so I don't want to make Thanksgiving dinner awkward. Now, by the same token, we need to be winsome, strategic. Timing is important. Tact. But don't let these things stop you from ever speaking truth. Some places, discipleship is easier than others. Um, I love making disciples of children. 
They're so eager to learn and believe and trust. And then they get to like high school and I give them to Nathan. (laughs) But I would encourage you to be involved with discipling children, whether your own or or your grandchildren, coming alongside parents and helping maybe in Awana or Sunday school. They're little sponges. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And they ask great questions and they're hungry for answers. In this case, though, we're going to go to Luke chapter 12 and we're going to see an angry mob. An angry mob. Uh, It says, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. Stepping on one another. They're crowding in. They want to hear Jesus. They want to hear this confrontation between him and the religious leaders. They want ringside seats. We've been seeing mob mentality in the news lately. It's never a pretty sight. People don't tend to think nuanced in a mob. You know that when you make a disciple one-on-one, you need a quiet place, you need time. A lot of theological issues take time to think about, to ruminate on. Mobs don't do that. And so Jesus is going to make things really cut and dry in this context. And we need to hear that. That will simplify things for us. Very cut and dry. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, began saying to his disciples, first of all, this is, this is where it starts, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Why would he start there? Well, we, we said last week, and if you missed it last week, that we're all prone to wanting to hear false teaching. We're all prone to wanting to have our ears tickled. We're all prone to listening to celebrities or the important academics. Right? Whenever you hear someone quoted in the newspaper, they always give their credentials as if somehow that makes what they're about to say true. And so in this culture, those were the Pharisees and the scribes, the the learned men, the popular, the powerful, the celebrity. And here Jesus publicly to this mob is saying, first of all, don't listen to those guys. They're hypocrites. You can't listen to me and to them. We're teaching completely different things. And he uses this metaphor, leaven, yeast. A little yeast ruins the whole lump. There were times during the year where Israel would clean their house of yeast because yeast had become a metaphor for sin. And 
they were to discover how difficult it was to get yeast out. That was supposed to help them understand how ubiquitous sin is, how it's everywhere, how it's in every corner and recess and crevice of your heart, and that it needs to be cleaned out. But it's impossible to get every last bit of it out. And it was supposed to point them to their need for God's mercy and His cleansing and His righteousness. And so here, because the word leaven had become a metaphor for something bad, for sin, Jesus is taking that metaphor and attaching it to the teaching of the Pharisees. You need to root it out. A little leaven ruins the whole lump. You can't even allow a little bit of this false teaching into your life. It, it multiplies. It takes root. It tarnishes everything it touches. And the chief reason that this false teaching is leaven is because Jesus says it, it's hypocrisy. The word hypocrite in the Greek was for stage actors. They were all hypocrites. All actors are hypocrites. Amen. No, the, the point is they're pretending to be someone they're not. That's what the word meant. And then it, it was taken into a new context and said, those who teach something and live the opposite are hypocrites. And that's the way we're used to the word today. And so the worst of all hypocrisy is to say... We represent God. We speak for God. We are teaching you the paths of righteousness. This is how to be in the kingdom. This is how to be to go to heaven. To claim that this is truth when it is not. The worst hypocrisy of all. You cannot listen to these people. They're hypocrites. It's not just that they would say, live this way and you'll be righteous, and then they weren't living that way themselves. Certainly the hypocrisy, that we understand that hypocrisy. But in a, in a greater sense, Jesus is saying, they're claiming to represent God. They're claiming to be the shepherds of Israel. They're not. They're play-acting. They're hypocrites their teaching is hypocrisy see how clear he makes that it's not well i'll take a little bit of what they're teaching a little bit of what jesus is teaching a little bit of this and a little bit of that he's wholesale reject what they're teaching yeah but didn't they use the old testament yes Weren't they teach, teaching people to worship and obey God? Weren't they teaching a lot of things that we would affirm? Yes, but because ultimately all of that was just leading to self-righteousness and leading hearts away from God, you have to reject all of it. 
of course when you hear teaching that we would deem false teaching, some of it is going to sound good. Nobody's going to listen to a false teacher if they were just completely off the wall, nutty. Doesn't Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? Jesus goes on to say, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Everything will be brought out into the light eventually. He's pointing to a a future day, a day of judgment. He's getting people out of their everyday, yeah, well, what about this and what about that? And on to the bigger picture. There is a day of judgment coming where everything will be brought into the light. Everything hidden will be revealed. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. There will be no secret sins. It will all be exposed. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Maybe a, a, a modern picture of this would be you've got a 60-inch flat-screen TV above your head and every thought and everything you thought you whispered in private is going to be projected for all to see. He's giving them this big view of our omniscient God. Stop listening to these fools. Listen to God. He knows the truth. He is the truth. He reveals truth. Hypocrisy will be revealed. False teaching will be revealed. Private sins will be revealed. Whom are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to Jesus or the popular culture? Disciples of Christ must choose to privately and publicly fear God. Now I know that language isn't going to win any friends in this culture. It seems arcane to say fear God or the fear of the Lord, although it's one of the major themes of the Bible. And the Bible, in no uncertain terms, tells us again and again that if you want wisdom and you want knowledge, first you need to fear the Lord. The reformer Martin Luther, in his catechisms, would start each catechism with to fear and love God. To fear and love God. And I like that he put the word love in, though, though I think love is captured in the word fear. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It demonstrates fear of God. Holy reverence for Him, a respect for Him, and trusting in Him. So we're going to see from Jesus three ways we're supposed to fear God. 
All right? The first way is to fear God the Father. Fear God the Father. And he gives us two reasons for fearing God the Father. Number one, because he is the ultimate judge. This is the more traditional understanding of fear. And we could use a healthy dose of this understanding in our culture who's really taken Jesus and turned him into a therapist or a guide. My best, my BFF, you know, my best friend forever. But Jesus says this to, in the presence of the crowd, but he's addressing his disciples. And he says, I say to you, my friends, and I love that he uses the word friends because it doesn't seem to jive with what he's about to say. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Now let me stop there, because I'm pretty scared of having the body killed. That, that's a normal, natural, healthy fear to have. I want to go quietly in my sleep and wake up in the presence of the Lord. Yet it is God who determines every day of our life and the manner in which we die. The psalmist says, teach me to number my days. I'm not guaranteed a tomorrow. I'm not even guaranteed a next minute from now. But here he is publicly saying, I understand what you're thinking. If I follow Jesus, it's going to have consequences. And certainly our culture is changing and it looks like, I'm not a prophet, but just reading history and reading the Bible, eventually all cultures fearing and obeying God becomes very unpopular. Cultural Christianity is, is starting to evaporate, which is actually a good thing. Cultural Christianity isn't true Christianity. It's just, hey, everyone I know and everyone around me calls themselves a Christian, so I will too, so it's not awkward at parties and social gatherings. But the mocking has already started, and now the persecution and eventually, violence, imprisonment. We went from postmodernism where everybody's ideas are equally valid, and that didn't work, and we knew it wouldn't work because all ideas are not equally valid. And so, what's going to come into the vacuum? Francis Schaeffer predicted this. Decades ago, he said, fascism and statism. So, we're living George Orwell's 1984, or Animal Farm. All animals are equal. Only some animals are more equal than other animals. All ideas are valid, except those ideas. And we're watching free speech trying to be destroyed before our very eyes through 
violence, intimidation, mockery. And so there's nothing new under the sun. We know historically this, this is what happens. And this was what was going to happen in this context as well. Jesus knew if you follow me, there's going to be consequences. You live in a theocratic society. Religion was everything. The synagogue was everything. It's where all your business contacts were. This was going to hurt you in the wallet. You may get disowned by your family. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but the sword. I'll divide brother against brother, sister against sister. He's telling them you have to choose sides, and I understand there's going to be consequences to choosing sides. So who are you going to fear? The one who can only kill the body, and then after that, I mean, they could drag your dead body around the streets like they do, but you're not in there anymore. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's good old-fashioned turn or burn. Jesus affirms the existence of hell. If there's no literal hell, the argument makes no sense. And so I know that's the most uncomfortable thing about evangelism and discipleship. You're realizing that those who reject Christ are sitting under God's divine wrath. But so were you and so was I until I heard the gospel and believed. Everybody is already rejecting the gospel, whether you presented it to them or not. So don't think you're doing anyone any favors by not presenting the gospel to them. Well, if I tell them the gospel, they might reject Christ. They're already rejecting Christ. They need to know that's their problem is they're rejecting Christ. Some people need to hear this part of the gospel more than anything else. There's no fear of the Lord. They're smug. They're arrogant. Sometimes when you're discipling someone, you see there's no fear of the Lord. They see what's in God's word. They understand that's what it says. They know what it means. And they're like, but I'm going to go and do this anyways. No fear of the Lord. My counseling professor would say at that point, you pray for them, and he would quote a proverb, the the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Tell them, life's going to be hard. You think by disobeying God, life's going to get better for you. That will not be the case. Oh, maybe in the short term it might appear better because you got what you wanted. But it never leads to ultimate blessing and satisfaction and happiness. Only leads to judgment and the heavy hand of discipline of God. 
So I know that's why some people avoid getting involved in discipleship because, well, what if they don't listen? Well, if they never hear, they never have a chance to listen. And so let your trust in God and your fear of the Lord and His love for you and what He's done in your life compel you past your fear to have that difficult conversation. There's kind of another side of the coin, though, of the fear of the Lord. And Jesus strikes this beautiful balance. He says to fear God the Father because ultimately He cares for you. And the Father can care for you like nobody else can. God can love you like nobody else can. Yes, He can punish you like nobody else can, but He can love you like nobody else can. I am so thankful that my earthly father embodied this truth to me. And if you had a father like this as well, count your blessings every day. It is, a, it is rare, sadly, becoming even more rare in our culture to have a father like this. But my dad scared the jeepers out of me. <laughs> and yet I felt so safe around him. You don't want to get on his bad side, but you don't want to get on my bad side either because my dad's bigger than your dad. And in most cases, he was. Is. 6'3", 225, Marine, Vietnam vet. Doesn't need this microphone to fill this room with sound. And yet can be so gentle and loving that all of his grandchildren call him Pip. (laughs) And uh, I, I can understand the fear of the Lord. How at the same time, you can be absolutely mortified of our awesome God and feel so safe around Him. I like the way C.S. Lewis would capture this imagery in the Narnia books. The Lion of Judah. Oh, he's no tame lion. He's a terrible lion. But he's good. You want to run from him and run to him simultaneously. (laughs) Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. See the balance he's striking Hey, don't fear those who can only kill the body and then after that, nothing. Fear the one who can kill the body and torment in hell. And at the same time, fear this wonderful, loving Father who takes care of His creation and and you, made in His image, you are the pinnacle of His creation. A saving relationship with the Father means that you can fear Him by trusting Him. Fearing God also means to trust Him, to reverence Him, to honor Him. I want wisdom from this God, so I will humbly fear Him and submit to Him and listen to His wisdom. 
Secondly, then, Jesus says, how do we become a disciple? You have to fear God. How do you fear God? Fear the Father. But you also need to fear God the Son. You know that Orthodox Christianity affirms our triune God, three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity never appears in your Bible, and yet there's these Trinitarian passages all throughout your Bible. Here's one of them. Jesus is going to talk about fearing God the Father, fearing God the Son, and fearing God the Holy Spirit. Fear God the Son because this is how God in His good pleasure has ordained that we fear the Father through the Son. How do we have this kind of loving relationship with God the Father? How can we call Him Abba Father? Through the Son. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Very cut and dry, very black and white. You either confess that Jesus is Lord and you're in with the Father, or you deny Jesus is Lord and you have no relationship with the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God in human flesh. All authority has been given to him. When he told the disciples, I am going away, they said, where are you going? I'm going to the Father. We don't know the way there. Show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so when we make disciples, we're teaching people, like our motto here at the church, it's all about Jesus. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so we can love like Jesus. A-L-L. He's our, our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our teacher. He corrects us. He disciplines us. He encourages us. We model our life after His. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. All these things are true. And so when we're making disciples, the emphasis is on Jesus. Not people's idea in their minds about who Jesus is, but who Jesus actually is as revealed to us in the Scripture. Part of discipleship is kind of slowly tearing down people's false perceptions and ideas about Jesus and rebuilding a true Jesus back up. You're taking out the idols of their heart and replacing it with the true God. One of the Beautiful pictures here is that really people didn't know how to have a relationship with God. And people around the world don't know how to have a relationship with God. At best, they're just hoping they've done enough good. So maybe Allah will be pleased with them or or whoever their God is. In Christianity, God comes down himself as Jesus Christ, 
and tells us how to have a relationship with God, not only tells us, but makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God that you could know today beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have a relationship with God, I have eternal life, there's a place for me reserved in heaven, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And no one can pluck you from the Father's hand because the sheep know my voice. All these wonderful promises in the Bible. God actually came in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we're helping disciples to, to understand. They're putting their trust in a person, not an idea. An actual person who died and was raised again on the third day and appeared to many to prove you can trust in me. I have the power over death. No matter what you're afraid of in life, there's nothing in your life worse than death. And I give you eternal life. And as we saw in the previous verse, there is something in the next life worse than death. And I've got that covered as well. So you can trust me. And living for Christ then becomes our joy and really our reasonable, why wouldn't we follow this guy? Another picture though here I, I like is how you have access to God, the Father, by knowing the Son. When I was a younger boy, I would go out in the summers with my best friend. His grandpa had a ranch out in Lockford. I don't know if you're familiar with Northern California. It's just east of Stockton. Big cattle ranch. Oh, boy's dream to spend summers. Acreage upon acreage upon acreage. And... Uh, We'd ride quads and horses, and we had pellet guns, and sometimes 22. And um, it was like Huckleberry Finn. And there, were, there was another ranch down the road that a, a, a vet, he had that ranch. You know, big doc, horse doctor, cattle doctor. Just knew him as Doc. Like on... Uh, yeah, I was thinking, uh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> uh, I was thinking uh, cars, right? The older car was Doc. But that'll date us, right? Gunsmoke! <laughs> I'm only 45. <laughs> I've heard of Gunsmoke. <laughs> Doc, and he was this imposing figure, and he barely ever spoke. He just kind of grunted. And he had these two sons, Cameron and Hunter. Cameron and Hunter. I mean, it was as country as you could get. And they said, let's, let's camp out one night at our place. So we camped out, and in the middle of the night, it was kind of late, and uh, I, I was thirsty, and they said, you go in the kitchen, get something to drink. So I go in the kitchen. I'm standing in front of the fridge, and so the kitchen's only lit up by that that fridge light, and in comes the six-foot-four, absolutely naked, scary man, because that's how farmers sleep in the summer. And he said, 
who are you, boy? What are you doing in my kitchen? <laughs> and I was trembling, and I said, I'm a friend of Cameron and Hunter. And he said, oh, well, why don't you say so? <laughs> there's milk there, and there's fresh cookies on the counter. And then he went back to bed. Now, as far as analogies go, right? <laughs> When we stand before the judgment seat, who are you? Why are you trying to get into my heaven? I know the Son. Well, come on in then. Come on in. Your family. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Finally, fear God the Holy Spirit because this this is how... You fear the Father and the Son. How are you going to fear someone you've never seen? The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to understand the Scriptures, to put our faith in the Son so we could come to the Father. In fact, Jesus says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. That's a very strange statement. Let let me explain. Before you had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, perhaps you spoke blasphemies against his name. You mocked Christians. You used Jesus' name as a curse word. All of that can be forgiven of you right now. I don't know for each of you, what your relationship is with Jesus Christ, but justification is instantaneous. You place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. Sanctification takes a lifetime. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But the one sin that cannot be forgiven is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, well, why not? And I'll give you three reasons, but let me finish here. When, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That is true of Christians. But the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin because the Holy Spirit reveals to us that Jesus is Lord. If you deny that Jesus is Lord, you're denying the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You're saying, well, that's not God. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, and he's come in the flesh and he is from God. He's God and he's man. These are things the Holy Spirit reveals to us. And those who deny that truth, that saving truth, 
blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and that's why it can't be forgiven. Because the way we're forgiven is to do what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall be saved. What must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall be saved. Man won't believe on his own. He needs the Holy Spirit to quicken his heart, to open up his eyes, And if people don't listen to the Holy Spirit, then they can't get saved. So that's why that's the unpardonable sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need of Christ as Savior. Jesus says in John 16, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, which is strange. Why would I want Jesus to go away? How would that be my advantage? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And and the verse continues from there, but you get the point. If the Holy Spirit's job is to come and convict us of sin and our need for a Savior, and we don't listen to the Holy Spirit, we're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The very thing he's convicting us of that leads to salvation won't happen if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't listen to the Scriptures. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not listen to the Scriptures as the Word of Christ. And how are we saved? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The Word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. Sorry about these small font. I really wanted to get all three of these passages on the same slide because you need to see these in parallel. You need to understand that the Holy Spirit is inextricably linked with the Scriptures. We get this idea in our culture, in evangelicalism, that it's an either-or. Well, sometimes I read the Scriptures, and sometimes the Holy Spirit just speaks to me. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures. Ephesians 5.17, Paul writes, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't want to be a fool. I want to know the will of the Lord. Paul, how can I know the will of the Lord? Well, do not get drunk with wine, because then you can't understand anything. For that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. He wrote that from from prison to the church at Ephesus. He also wrote another letter to the Colossians from the same prison. Right? So these letters are written in very close proximity in time. And when you get to Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What has he done? He's replaced the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, with the phrase, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. For Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, 
those are synonymous. They're interchangeable. Also notice that in Ephesians, he says, making melody with your heart to the Lord. In Colossians, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Interchanging the Lord Jesus Christ with God. When we just use the word God, it usually is most specifically talking about God the Father. Those, those, are, those are interchangeable. Not that they're the same person, but they're one God. Three persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. It's not three gods, three persons, one God. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's the only other place that phrase word of Christ is used. So we've got being filled with the Spirit, connected with, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, connected with, it's the word of Christ that brings you to saving faith. So you blaspheme the Spirit, and you don't have the Word of Christ. Then if you don't have the Word of Christ, no salvation. That is why blaspheming the Holy Spirit, again, is unpardonable. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe in the Word of God. I don't care what they call themselves. There's no such thing as a Christian who says, yeah, but I don't believe in this book. We don't know what being a Christian is without this book. We don't know who Christ is without this book. We don't know what salvation or the gospel is without this book. And so when we make disciples of Christ, this book better be open and not just for show. We better be leading people to the word of Christ and praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their minds and convict them of sin and turn from their own ideas and adopt God's ideas as truth. So then, what is a disciple of Christ? We'll wrap up here. There's a lot of ways we could define this, but I want to define this in a Trinitarian way. A disciple of Christ, then, is one who fears and loves God the Father, through trusting God the Son as Lord and Savior, by obeying the teaching of God the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Word of Christ. We fear God the Father by trusting God the Son and obeying the teaching of God the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. A disciple of Christ rejects the teachings of all those opposed to Christ, including my own sin nature that wants to oppose Christ. Repents from his or her own sinful tendency to be his or her own teacher of truth and righteousness. I, I, I reject my prerogative and my right to have the final say in my life. It was never a right to begin with. It's God's right to have the final say. He purchased us with the blood of his son. We are owned by God and oh what an owner. What a wonderful master. So then what is our job as disciple makers? It's very simple. It's, it's three steps. Rinse and repeat. Lead the disciple to fear and love God through faith in Jesus Christ as revealed by the Spirit through the Scriptures. Show them the 
the Father by showing them the Son through the Scriptures. Until they're, they're saved, until they have a saving relationship with God, all discipleship is evangelism. You know, well, I haven't made Christ my Lord and Savior. Maybe I'll do that another day. Okay, well then, let's just work on your anxiety problem another way. <laughs> Good luck with that. That's what the world's trying to accomplish. Now, let's get back to the gospel until you recognize that nothing else matters until you have a saving relationship with God, then you're not ready to move on in your discipleship. Number two, then help the disciplee understand that the Bible reveals that our hearts want to go our own way. So you got you to say, okay, now that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to make him Lord and Savior and you want to follow him, the first thing Jesus teaches us is we don't want to listen to him. <laughs> know that about yourself. Be humble. Be suspicious of yourself. You're going to read this and you think you're just going to grab hold of it and do everything it says. And we all know it doesn't work that way. And so we'll show the disciple how to repent from those idols of the heart and turn towards the true God, trusting his word to reveal the life of trust, obedience, and blessedness. You're constantly encouraging and reaffirming this God is good. He loved you. He loves you. He saved you. He died for you. His word is truth. It brings life and happiness and blessedness. You can trust him. Doesn't that make you want to go out and make disciples? Get on board. This is what we do. Hobbies are nice, but ultimately this is where the joy comes from. This is what glorifies God. Father, thank you for making each of us disciples of Christ. Thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit so we would know our own sinfulness and we would have the faith to believe your truth And we would have the power in us that raised Christ from the dead to say no to our sin nature and say yes to Christ. Make us into true disciples and teach us how to disciple others for your glory and and our joy. Amen. Amen. God bless you.